Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing Beavercast. I'm pretty sure this is the world's first ever podcast live from the top of a beaver dam. I'm recording in Northern Ontario, Canada. It's July 19th, 2008. And I'm staying up at my family's cabin enjoying some amazing moments and memories of my childhood. We picked some blueberries and had an amazing blueberry crisp. We went out on the lake. I saw a stunning sunrise this morning. The animals were just going crazy. And there's a mother and father loon feeding two baby loons just in front of our dock. I'll put pictures on the show notes. I'm enjoying really nice dry weather. It's in the low 70s. It's a break from our sultry South Florida summer. And for the show today, we have an amazing interview coming up with Christopher S. Penn. He's the marketing ninja, and we're going to share 10 strategies for increasing your internet marketing. And I'm going to cover the 10 hottest trends in internet marketing. I'm preparing a presentation for Affiliate Summit. So let's get to a few calls off the top. And if you have any calls or comments or questions that you want to share with us, you can call our K7 audio line any time of the day or night. It's a digital recording device. And the number is 206-888-6606. And here's how it sounds. Our first caller today, Ben Karen. Thanks, Ben. Hi, Jay. It's Ben Karen of ADHD1.net. Love the show. Love 10 Golden Rules. I'm a big fan. Try to listen to it as often as possible. Calling in regards to Seth Godin and Meatball Sunday, and just wanted to say that I found his work to be fascinating reading material. I'm also very fond of would do been using that to go after the long tail keyword with uh, with positive results I had a question about Google search volume noticed in their keyword tool that they have a number of uh, non default columns which you can display through the use of the drop-down menu I'm just wondering when we're going to start to see some actual numbers I saw on someone's blog they had a screen capture of a search they did using the keyword tool, and their results page actually showed them some some numbers of search volume. And I, we don't know if this was a fluke or some kind of beta test, but I'm just wondering when the rest of us can start to get some numbers for our data. Anyway, keep up the good work, and I look forward to the next podcast. And Karen. Thanks, Ben. The Google search volume, I, I assume you're talking about the Google keyword tool. And unfortunately, I'm on a beaver dam, so I can't check out what you're talking about. But if anyone's seen what Ben's talking about, please give us a call this week. Help Ben out, and I'll play it on the next podcast. Next up, Jim Paris. Hi, Jay. My name is Jim Paris, and my website is christianmoney.com. And what we do is provide financial advice to Christians, and this has been a very good niche for me for about 10 years. My question is, regarding site design, I'm really torn. I see a lot of beautiful sites, and it makes me want to begin to build more graphics on my site and make it more graphics-oriented. But then I hear the experts saying that to stay away from too many graphics because you want to be friendly to the search engines, and if your site is all graphic, there's no text for the search engines to find. So I'm trying to find a balance here. And uh, right now, I'm thinking I need to add some more graphics to my site, make it a little bit more friendly, visibly. But I'm just not sure how far I should go with that and what the advantages or disadvantages are 
of building too many graphics as opposed to keeping mostly text, which is the way I have it today. Again, this is Jim Paris of ChristianMoney.com, and I really appreciate your podcast. Thank you. Jim, thanks so much for calling. I think a really nice balance between images and text is the way to go with web design. Here's a couple of the rules I follow for web design. First of all, you should definitely read the book by Steve Krug. Steve wrote a great book called Don't Make Me Think, and he covers web design and web usability. It's really one of the best pieces I've ever seen on the topic. And we were fortunate enough to interview Steve Krug in 10 Golden Rules podcast number 10. The second thing I'd say is that a picture is worth a thousand words. One or two really great pictures that explain what your company offers or represents your brand in an aspirational way is a great way to tell the site visitor that they're at the right place. For your brand, I'm picturing an image of a clean-cut, upper-middle-class man standing proudly with his well-groomed family in front of a well-manicured lawn and a nice new house. This is the type of aspirational image for your target audience. It'll help communicate that this is a site for people with strong family values and a desire for financial security. My final rule on the image-text balance is that a picture is worth a thousand words to the viewer, but to Google and the other search engines, they can't really read an image. They can read the alt text name of the image, but it has no value for the search engines. So don't forget, we've mentioned this many times, but every page on your website, and most importantly your homepage, should have between 250 and 1,000 words of copy on the website. Pick two to three target phrases that you're going to repeat two or three times on the page, and that becomes a very good tool for the search engines to read the words on the site and know what the site and that page is all about. Next calls from Larry Vetter from Evoke. Hey, Jay. Hey, this is Larry Vetter. I'm the managing partner of Evoke and also president of the American Advertising Federation Orlando. And I was just really calling to thank you for coming on presenting at AAF District Conference. And I know I gave you like a rash of crap about stuff because, you know, hey, we're, we're an agency and we, we have to stand up and defend ourselves. And my point was, was basically, you know, that a brand can sometimes get larger than the method in which attracts people to the brand. And so flash-based sites are not all, all bad. But I want you to know that, you know, even though uh, in, the, in the presentation I do have to stand up for agencies, I want you to know that you did get through, and I really appreciate it. I've reread some of the information that you gave. I'm uh, now going to be doing my own internal research and trying to get better at it. And over the next several you know, weeks, probably months, uh, be a rollout uh, for our agency to get even better because I think the goal of today is know something tomorrow that you didn't know yesterday. So uh, we're going to try. And I'm going to send a challenge back your way uh, to evokead.com and have you look at it now and then take a look at it in six months and see where we've come and know that you were one of the spokes in the wheel of the inspirational movement. So, um, anyway, thanks again. Uh, we appreciate it. And, uh, hey, keep in touch, man. Larry, thanks so much for coming over from the dark side. Let me tell you the backstory on this one. I spoke at the Advertising Association's conference in Orlando, and I stuck my neck out a little bit. I called my presentation the top ten reasons most traditional ad agencies suck at Internet marketing. Larry stood up very early on in my presentation and said, hey, wait a minute, we're not all that bad. And I explained to Larry that, you know, on one hand, the presentation title was intentionally provocative. But on the other hand, 
Many of our clients still have traditional ad agencies, and many of these agencies still have their head in the sand when it comes to Internet marketing. I showed the websites, the home pages of about eight of these ad agencies, and many of those still had flash intros, the spinning designs that we all look to you know, skip intro as soon as we can find the button to turn off the music and the whirring, spinning little piece of technology. In the early 1900s, retail magnate John Wanamaker said, I know half my advertising's wasted. I just don't know which half. Most of the agencies we're talking about are still doing a lot of TV and radio, and they can't measure exactly how effective the advertising is. On the Internet, we have this amazing ability. We can measure how many leads we get and how many sales we generate, and we can measure the return on investment to the penny. So not all ad agencies suck, and many are working really, really hard to catch up. Larry, I'm glad you've seen the light, and by the end of the presentation, you definitely bought in to Internet marketing and all the things you need to do to change your business around. We'll all look forward to seeing the evolution of the Evoke marketing website. I've also posted the 10 Reasons Ad Agencies Suck presentation online. I'll put a link in the show notes to the page where it's posted. And here's the secret username and password just for all my friends in the Potiverse. The username is AdFed, A-D-F-E-D, and the password is 10 Reasons. So look for the link in the show notes, username AdFed, password 10 Reasons. Next up, let me talk about the 10 hottest trends in internet marketing. For those of you who heard the last show, I listed several of the trends I was working on for a presentation I'm preparing for the Affiliate Summit in Boston, August 10th to 12th. I called the presentation the 10 hottest trends in internet marketing and how you can use them for business. I also posted on LinkedIn, and I asked all of you to send in ideas for some additional trends that I could use in the presentation. And thank you so much to everyone. I got almost 20 contributions, and it's really helping me put a little meat around the presentation and build around the ideas that I'm working on. So here's a few of the themes that came in from the emails and some of the things I'm going to be using in the presentation. Dana Todd, who's the president of Sempo, that's the Search Engine Marketing Professionals Organization, and she's with Newsforce. She really redefined what I called social media public relations. She called it direct-to-consumer PR, and I think that's a really great way of explaining what we've been talking about several times on this show. And it's basically the strategy of merging search engine optimization and public relations. And the way it works is you add target keyword phrases to your press release. Put your press release on your website first and link from the wire release when you send the release out on PR Web or another wire service. Link to the page on your website. This allows the page on your website to show up in Google searches when someone searches the target keyword phrase you used. Next up, Dennis Daly reminded us about widgets. Widgets are small computer applications that your customers can install on their desktop to do simple tasks. They also allow people to play games or receive information. Check out a site called widgetbox.com. They have some really great tools, simple applications, that allow you to do things like post your latest blog post and make more complex things available on Widgetbox. Now, several people called in and mentioned the importance of great content. I don't know if this is really a hot new trend. Really, very good point. Let me share with you a couple of their comments. Allison Nazarian said, Give a shout-out to content. Dynamic, updated, relevant, informative, not in-your-face sales content. Without great content, there's not much potential for your website. Joe Bellorier said, What has remained constant in all of this is that producing many pages of keyword-rich quality content, which point back to your online conversion point, continues to reign as one of the fundamental, non-negotiable elements in any online marketing strategy. So definitely a shout-out to content. Not sure if it's the hottest trend, and it may not make it into the final presentation. Mark Evans mentioned payments. I will often go to a site 
with Google Checkout because I know it's easy and trustworthy and I already have my information in Google Checkout. Or a lot of times I'll buy simple things like Computer Inc. through Amazon.com because I know they already have my profile info and I can purchase it with one click. Mark also mentioned PayPal, Bill Me Later, and Revolution Money. My friend John McGran and Dwayne Jaworski mentioned the power of video to improve conversion and sell online. We definitely are going to have to talk about video in the 10 hottest trends in internet marketing. Sonia Meisenheimer gave me a really great, long, well-considered note. And she talked about the importance of reviews and ratings. I think she's on to something. And here's what she said. She said, as user-generated content goes, this is my number one recommendation in e-commerce right now. Learn from what real people have to say about your products and services. Gavin Nathan said, boost product sales through customer ratings and reviews and community involvement. Community users spend 54% more than non-community users. Let me give you another personal example. Before I purchase almost anything now, I Google the term with the word reviews. iPod reviews or even the audio microtrack that I'm recording on right now, I looked at 5 or 10 different reviews on sites like CNET or some of the technical sites in order to make a decision on which digital recorder I was going to spend a couple hundred bucks on. Craig Andrews put it simply. He said, customers are looking to one another for advice on what to buy. Really well said, Craig. Many other people mentioned a trend towards globalization and hot sales in other parts of the world. And I think that's a big opportunity we have to look at with the U.S. economy softening a little bit. You definitely want to look at opportunities. Um, I'm in Canada right now, and the Canadian economy is uh, nowhere near as soft as the U.S. economy. Europe has a very significant advantage from a dollar standpoint. There's great things happening in Asia and Australia. So you definitely want to check out global opportunities for your business. So a huge thank you to everyone who called in. It was a big help to me. And if anyone also wants to add any trends or join into the conversation, please give us a call. 206-888-6606. I got another couple weeks before I finalize the presentation. And if you're going to be at Affiliate Summit in Boston, I hope to see you there. Next up is a proud Boston resident. I met Christopher S. Penn at PodCamp Boston last year. He hosts two really excellent podcasts. He's smart, he's intellectual, and he has a really, really high level of technical expertise. And Chris and I covered 10 technical strategies. So let me play the 10 list bumper and we'll get to my conversation with Christopher S. Penn. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Golden rules. I'm really thrilled today that we have a really, really great special guest. It's Christopher S. Penn. And we met at PodCamp Boston, too. And Chris is actually one of the founders, along with Chris Brogan, of PodCamps. And regular listeners heard about the amazing time I had in Boston. And so I'm going to ask Chris to tell us all about PodCamps. He's also one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts called Marketing Over Coffee with John Wall. And he hosts another podcast, which I, th I think I just listened to episode 372. The Financial Aid Podcast? Yeah, amazing. That's It's actually up to 776 was today's. <laughs> so Sorry, I listened to 772 probably. Welcome, Chris Penn. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Yeah, it's great to be here. And I sent you a, a quick note saying that, you know, at the price of gold at all-time highs, it's probably the closest I'm going to get to 10 gold in anything these days. So uh, <laughs> yeah. here we are. So thanks so much for doing this. And I don't know if uh, you publicize this, this nickname, but a lot of people in the potosphere call you the Marketing Ninja, or maybe that's Mitch Joel's name. Um, that is Mitch Joel's name, yes. <laughs> 
And I think one reason is Chris is an accomplished martial artist. He also has an uncanny ability to clearly communicate complex things in internet marketing, to explain a lot of these internet marketing tools and technologies, what they are, how they can benefit you. So we're going to get into a list that I made and a list Chris made separately of 10 different tools for marketing and internet marketing. Tell me all about founding PodCamps and how people can use PodCamps and participate, what they are. Okay, PodCamp originally started out way, way, way back in 2005. You know, was the the first rumblings of it when uh, the New England Podcasters Group said, you know, we want to have like a, a a super meetup. At that time, a lot of interesting stuff was happening in podcasting. It was really getting off the ground. In 2006, I met this uh, kind of a goofy guy named Chris Brogan who was at an event called Bar Camp Boston, which was a developer's conference. I saw Chris. Uh, for those of you who are podcasters, you know that uh, you, can, you have these little portable audio recorders. I, I saw this guy standing in front of the, the room trying to record all the conference by st- holding the recorder right in front of the speaker, which is probably about the worst place you can put it, <laughs> because you just fry it. So you're going, that guy has no idea what he's doing <laughs> with that recorder he's got. I started to talk to him, and you know, of course it was, it was uh, the mayor of Twitterville, Chris Brogan, and we got to talking about how you know, Bar Camp was such a fun experience at the open conference. The people who are there are more than just attendees. They are participants, and we started talking, and we should do something like that, especially because back in, back in 2006, it sounds like so long ago, all of the interesting podcasting events, Podcast Academy, Podcast Hotel, Portable Media Expo, was all uh, West Coast stuff. Seattle, Ontario, California, San Francisco. So everything was on the other coast. And like, I don't really want to fly 3,000 miles just for a podcasting thing. I, just I to like hang it. out with some of the gang, right? Exactly. Especially I like it. If, especially if it's not a business trip or a business boondoggle, depending on how you look at it. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, so let's do something here. And Chris and I and, and a few other folks, Brian Person, Steve Garfield, um, Adam Weiss, the, uh, the original PodCamp 5 group, got together and said, let's, let's just do something. We found uh, a, a venue in Bunker Hill Community College, the, known from Goodwill Hunting, and expected maybe 50 people to show up at 300 uh, people from literally people flew from like London to get here. I was like, hi. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I was like, uh, hi. <laughs> so that's how it, it got started. And then afterwards, you know, Chris and I were, were talking and saying, you know, this was a lot of fun. We would love to do more of it, but we also want to extend it. And frankly, we both have day jobs. We don't want to run it. So we put it out under creative commons and a lot of p- other people took up the, the mantle followed the the rules of PodCamp and started having their own. I think we've had 30-some PodCamps around the globe. Stockholm, Singapore, Toronto, New York City, L.A. I think, I don't think I've seen one in South America. There's been one in Cape Town, South Africa, which is literally on the other side of the planet. Yeah, it has been just such a wild ride. And, you know, this, we're coming up now, and PodCamp Boston 3 will be uh, this July, July 19th and 20th here in Boston. So we're trying trying new things all the time. We're going to see how it works, and uh, it should be an exciting time. Let's get into the personal brand area. And okay. one, of the, one of the presentations you list on your site is called Powering Your Personal Network with Social Media, how the effective use of social networks and social media can vastly increase your personal influence and reach, helping you to achieve real-world results. Do you want to share some of the tips you've used to build your personal network and how people can apply these tactics for their personal network? Well, it's cheating, but start your own conference helps <laughs> because you end up with a pile of business cards like a foot high while we're there. But no, in all seriousness, think of how social networks operate. Think of what they really are. In a lot of ways, they are the digital water cooler. If you have interesting things to say, 
you will need to go out and find the niches where people who are talking about similar things and just begin to participate, not with the intent of building up a huge network or an empire or selling something, just with an intent to learn some more from the conversations that are happening all over the place. Look at networks that fit who you are and what demographics you want to participate in. I kind of straddle two worlds. My day job podcast, the Financial Aid Podcast, is squarely targeted at college students and, and families and stuff like that for people who are looking to pay for college. My more professional stuff in the sense of people I want to talk to in the professional sphere for podcast, for marketing, over coffee, for my own um, speaking engagements and stuff tends to be a, a very different audience. There is some overlap, particularly with the, the parents and stuff, but not a lot. So I look at my, networks like MySpace for the, the college kid crowd, especially the crowd that needs financial aid. And then I look at networks like LinkedIn for the professional business-to-business -business kind of things. Yeah. Follow the directions on a lot of websites. Take a lot of time to set up your profile, to put a lot of effort into, into it so it's not just a placeholder, but it, it, it is relevant to you. The most important thing I think you can do is to drive traffic from those social networking sites to your own personal website. I say this in actually one of my presentations, my new media marketing presentation, that the social networks have absolutely no interest in you as a human being, as an individual. You are a commodity. You're part of a commodity called audience that they use to sell advertising. And as a result, they have absolutely no incentive to help you in any way, shape, or form other than the bare minimum to get you to participate. We trade. You, they've done the hard work of aggregating the people, but they will obviously not really try and help you out. In return for gathering all the people, your job as a marketer is to pull people off of that network as fast as you can. Uh, not getting them to cancel their profiles, just pulling traffic off of that those networks and getting them to your stuff, your personal website, your personal podcast, your your, your business one, your your blog, whatever the tools that you own and have responsibility for so that you can then convert them into people who are fitting whatever goal you are trying to accomplish. If it's your personal network, if it's building your Rolodex, you want to make sure that you have the opportunity for someone to register for, you know, if you have a personal newsletter, I send out a personal newsletter every month of just, you know, here's what's going on, here's some opportunities and things, here's something cool or free or something that I found so that there's value in it for people to read it. And it's not just, you know, hi, I'm, I'm cluttering your inbox with more yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah, clearly that's the most important role of any newsletter, provide high-value content. So people not only are going to stay subscribed, they're definitely not going to report you as a spammer. And if the stuff's so good, they're going to forward it to other people who are going to sign up and become part of your network. Exactly. And this is a classic mistake. It's a, a silly mistake, but the world is not 100% digital. Wherever it is you go, carry some business cards with you. Just even just a few. Have a, you know, I have like two in my, in my wallet behind the credit cards as the backup emergency ones, just in case I meet somebody really, really interesting in wherever it is I'm traveling. If you can run into the most unlikely people. A good example of this was actually at PodCamp Boston. Now, anytime you go to a trade show or conference, you should be you should have practically a blackjack shoe strapped to your arm with business cards. But do you have a new media business card? Do you list all your Facebook and LinkedIn and blogs? And I actually have a business card with just one URL, and that web page has all the stuff on it. But if I put every social network I was on a business card. I have a business card that would be a, practically a, bill, a billboard. At PodCamp Boston, this guy was you know, sitting in the back wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Like, who's, who's that guy up there? It turned out it was Jeff Pulver, who was a, quite a prominent conference guy who, you know, with the PodCamp Boston was right before his conference. He stopped by yeah. and a strong alliance and a strong connection was made that would not have happened if you 
we're not on the lookout for interesting people to talk to. You joked about it off the top about starting your own conference, but certainly all the professional networking speakers and authors would recommend get involved in things, get involved in conferences, get involved in the organizing committees. And I've had tremendous opportunities through the American Marketing Association, the South Florida Interactive Marketing Association. We're working on forming something called the Global Interactive Marketing Association. And any time you can volunteer and help out the connections you make, the other people like yourself who are interested in doing this kind of stuff are really, really fantastic connections and connectors. So uh, you, you, you were joking about it, but it's so, so valuable. It really is. Conferences and the ability to network intelligently is a, one, probably one of the, the skills that American business schools do the most disservice to their students by not teaching. I always follow the philosophy of give before you expect to get and going to a conference and, or like a networking event. Finding out why people are there. Some people are looking for new jobs. Some people are looking for employees. Some people are looking for new business. Some people are looking for a date. And if you can hook them up with whatever it is they're looking for, they're going to remember you in such a positive light. Exactly. Look for opportunities to connect other people. I sent you over a list of what I called 10 web tools and technologies, because, of course, at 10 Golden Rules, we always think in 10s. Let's talk about blogs and what they are, how to do it, why you should do it, how to participate as a reader and writer, and maybe some of the blogs you read and sort of formats you use and stuff like that. A blog is a newspaper column without the rest of the newspaper. Easiest way to explain it. And it resides on the Internet, of course. Exactly. And when you use a tool like a uh, blog reader, like Google Reader, you are essentially assembling your own newspaper of the columnists that you want to read. If you are going to take up blogging as an occupation or as a part of your job, you are becoming a journalist. You are becoming a newspaper columnist, which means you have to start thinking about a production schedule. You have to start thinking about quality of content and what you're going to be writing out. Plan things out as much as you can. Be prepared to provide as much value. Look for stories. Think in terms of stories. There's another aspect of blogs that I think a lot of us treat in the businesses. Yeah, that's what blogs are. But I often explain to people that in a lot of ways, blogs are the new newsletters because people subscribe to blogs. You mentioned readers, which is an automated way to get a blog to your personal web page. There's also email subscriptions on blogs. So a lot of people are getting an email every time you do a new blog post. Podcasts is the next one I had on my list, and obviously everyone listening to this show is familiar with at least basic principles of what a podcast is. What are they? How do you podcast? And give us your personal thing. When do you listen and make time, and what are some of the podcasts that you like to listen to? I have a ton that I listen to in, in video, uh, winelibrary.tv, the TED Talks, which, by the way, is if you don't subscribe to the TED Talks in the video podcast world, uh, you are missing out on some unbelievable brain food. And that's really what podcasts are to me is they are – my iPod is my personal university. And when I find stuff, that, you know, good content just gets loaded right up. I have a, about an hour commute on the ride home, but 35, 40 minutes on the way to work. So all that time is instead of listening to sports radio or whatever, I'm, I'm stuffing things into my head. Podcasts are nothing more than uh, – I like to call them the – online version of TiVo. You set up you know, what shows that you want to record or download, and they, they've already been recorded. And then uh, when you come back the, you know, the next morning or whatever, you'll have stuff ready to put onto your iPod. 
easiest way to get started listening for as much as some people complain about it, iTunes from Apple Computer is the single best, easiest way to start listening to podcasts. As for how to start making them, that's a full-day seminar. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I don't think you were able to attend my session at PodCamp Austin, but I covered my journey from launching a podcast, and I recorded my session and put it on one of the 10 Golden Rules podcasts. I think it's episode 13. I called it the 10 Golden Rules of Launching and Promoting a New Podcast. So if anyone wants the beginner set... I covered my first three or four months of podcasting. Now that's uh, available on episode 13. Uh, you touched on something that's so valuable, and you just briefly touched on it. I've got to expand on it. The TED Talks are amazing. And TED Conference takes place every year in uh, Southern California, and they get some of the most incredible minds from each field all around the world. And there's a lot of technology stuff. I just got an email today that Al Gore's video from TED 2008 has just been released. It's free. That's the part that blows my mind is that all this stuff is free. You have doctoral level courses and things being taught for free. If you go into iTunes, there's iTunes University where I think it's now 22 colleges are putting up all their course lectures and stuff in there. And you could go from zero to PhD in physics just on your iPod. You obviously, you wouldn't get the, the you know, certificates and the sheets of paper that say you know it. But if it's, if it's the knowledge you want, there has never been a time in human history where more knowledge is available for free to anyone with an internet connection. That's awesome. Let's move on to the next one, SEO, search engine optimization. We've spent a lot of time on it on the show, but why don't you define it? Give us your take on SEO for dummies and talk about content development and link building strategies. <laughs> that's, that's a profession. Um, search engine optimization is anything you do to make your site more easily found. And that's a very broad definition because sometimes... In the marketing field, we get caught up into what what's Google doing today, and it really is Google is certainly a a vital piece of getting people to find the stuff that you're creating, but it's not the only game in town. Certainly, one of the largest games in town, but not the only one. Podcasts, word of mouth marketing, all these things, whatever it is you can do to make your site easier to be found, whether it's submitting articles to Dig, whether it is sending an email newsletter to people and asking them to forward it on to friends. You're optimizing your site for people to find it when they're looking for it. You have to focus on, first and foremost, creating a good website that is syntactically correct, that has good content, that has stuff that people will want, because a lot of what passes in terms of reputation for SEO in the past has been tricks. You know, you can trick an engine to doing this, you can trick a website into doing this. That provides maybe a short-term hit, but no long-term investment by the audience that you want to be gathering. The only surefire, 100% guaranteed way to build audience over a long period of time is to have good stuff that people want to naturally come to your website and, and find. Let's touch on analytics. So important to understand who's coming to your site, where they're coming from, and what they're doing when they get there. And I know you spend a lot of time on this on different shows. You want to touch on analytics for us a little bit? Analytics are how you measure what's happening. And there's a lot of different ways to measure things. Where people get into trouble with analytics is that they start to view eyeballs as the end goal. And unless you're CBS or the Wall Street Journal, eyeballs are not particularly important. It's more important to develop a sales funnel of sorts for your website. So if you have a website or a podcast or a blog or whatever, what is the end goal? What is it you're trying to achieve? Then you map that back through a, a traditional, old-fashioned, old-school sales funnel, and then you can measure your progress. Are you achieving that goal? And where are you losing people along the process if you're not achieving that goal? The analytics tell you really at the top of the funnel, the raw traffic coming into the top of the funnel, and then you have to do, do stuff like lead qualification, you know, prospects, conversion, and all that stuff so that 
you reach your end goal. Now, if you don't have an end goal, the analytics can seem like a an appealing red herring, but by themselves, they're not very useful. The other trick is with analytics, there are so many different ways to measure something. Like how do you measure a podcast success is a good example. Do you measure by downloads? Do you measure by you know subscribers to the RSS feed? Ultimately, because there's so much variability, the only surefire measure is to have something at the sales funnel at the bottom that you are achieving. Did you get an additional student loan out of that podcast? Did you get an additional sale of a t-shirt or whatever? If you did, then you know that uh, the funnel itself is functional. It's really important to not get... Con- caught in the analytics trap of managing by the numbers and seeing audience and raw traffic as as the end goal. It is just the start of the, of the journey. It's interesting. There's a great quote by Malcolm McLuhan, who was a Canadian author, and he said, the medium is the message. And that was long before podcasts were around. But to, to me, my podcast, my podcast is the medium and the content is the message. And it's building, it's helping build a community and a brand around 10 Golden Rules and around people interested in interactive marketing. If it's effective in doing that, and I think it is, and I think every time I get an email and it's from K7, which is our free audio recording line that we use, I'll plug it now, 206-888-6606. And every time someone who listens to the show calls in and participates and asks a question or shares a comment or shares a new tool or technology they're using, that's when I think the 10 Golden Rules podcast is being effective because we're creating a community. We're sharing all this expertise with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, that's, that email is, is our first level of success. I think podcasts have a long, long way to go. And the value is as more and more people discover them, it's going to be amazing. And the podcast's ability to, to sell or do business is still in the future. And I think the early phase is all about developing that community. Absolutely. You mentioned readers a little bit earlier. You want to describe a reader and how you use it, what it is? A reader in the sense of a a blog reader or a podcast reader is a way of aggregating stuff that you find. Right now, if you go to a, you know, a blog is really nothing more than a web page, but there is a mechanism to subscribe to it, a mechanism to have it delivered to you rather than you having to go get it. If I had to go out and actually visit the web pages of all of the blogs I read, I'd never have time for anything else because I subscribed to over 2,000 different blogs, and I'm not going to list any of them. <laughs> but a reader like Google Reader gives me the ability to really assemble my own newspaper. If a blog is a newspaper columnist, the reader is the mechanism by which I put all the things together so that I have a newspaper to read whenever it is that I, you know, I want to. And I have things that ranked by priority and different tags and labels and this bizarre labyrinth of categorization. It's how I put together my newspaper and it's how I stay on top of the world. Some people read the New York Times when they come into the office or the Wall Street Journal. I read the uh, Christopher S. Penn newspaper. <laughs> That's great. Dig and Delicious, they're, they're complex, but you want to try and give us the simple take on Dig and the role of tagging and Delicious? There's a number of ways you can share stuff online, and social sharing is kind of what these two sites are about. They are about being able to share with the world the things that you think are interesting. From a marketing perspective, it means being able to reach more people than you can just on your computer when you bookmark something. That's probably the best way to explain what they are. They're a social way of letting the world see what you've bookmarked or what you think is important. When it comes to using them for business, I don't use them that much, honestly, because even though you can generate a lot of eyeballs and a lot of traffic with them, I found that at least in the, the student loan world and the, the world that I work in that signs in my paycheck, the traffic from those sites is terrible quality, terrible quality. The next idea I had was conversion, the broad definition being what percentage of people who come to a website become a lead or what percentage of people sign up for a free newsletter or what percentage of people ultimately resource a student loan in your world. What works? How do you test? What are some of the good offers that generate conversion? 
The most important thing you can do with conversion is to understand who your audience is because if you have a generic process, you'll get generic results. As a good example, if you are targeting graduate students, let's just say, they, they have very different needs and wants than your college freshman, you know, the kid who just donned the cap and down in high school. That's different from the continuing education student who maybe at the age of 40 is coming back to school. They have very different needs and wants. Conversion is about suggesting to people that they do something. Leave a comment, call a comment line, buy a t-shirt, take out a loan, buy a house, doesn't really matter what. Conversion is the process of getting them to go from someone who's interested to someone who is committed to whatever it is that you are doing. And there are a whole bunch of different ways to improve your conversion. Probably one of the easiest ways is to take a look at who your audience is. If you have a database, you absolutely positively need to be mining that database and gathering as much information within reason about people so you can see what common characteristics they have. A good example, if you are a musician, let's say a piano player. If you're on MySpace, which is, by the way, a giant database, you can look for people who are like, who listen to the musicians that you sound like. So uh, my, my friend Matthew Ebel is an independent piano player, a piano rock player. When he goes to market his music on, on MySpace, trying to get traffic from MySpace to come to his website, the easiest thing to do is to look for people who are fans of Billy Joel, Elton John, and Ben Folds because they are the three musicians that his music is most like. He knows his audience. He knows what it will appeal to that audience and then goes out and gets those people. Just by segmenting up your database, whatever it is, and then crafting your offers, crafting your product offering based on what those people want and need, you will do much, much better than just generically blasting everyone and hoping that someone pays attention. That's a really great point. I often refer to a phrase that comes out of Don Pepper's and Martha Rogers' great books on one-to-one marketing, and it's IDIC, Identify, Differentiate, Interact, and Customize. If mm-hmm. you can identify what like characteristics people have who come to your website and actually take the desired action, they sign up for your newsletter, they sign up for your product, they purchase a product. If you can identify those characteristics, then you can start differentiating the web experience for them identifying who those people are when they come back to your website and customize your relationship with them. IDIC, Mm -hmm. I think it's a great insight, not only into direct marketing, which is what Peppers and Rogers were writing about, but interactive marketing, internet marketing, really is direct marketing in the connected age. The next one I had was around testing, and we certainly have touched on it with a couple of the things. And when I wrote the 10 Golden Rules four and a half years ago, I wrote rule number one, there are no rules. And what I meant by that was internet marketing is really all about testing because it's so fast and inexpensive to test two different offers or two different designs or test different keyword phrases in a a pay-per-click campaign. So there are no rules refers to forget everything you brought from traditional marketing. When you come to interactive marketing, you don't necessarily know the answers, but you can find the answers really, really quickly by testing. You want to talk a little bit about what you've learned about testing and the role of testing in your world? Testing is important, but you need to know what you're looking for. It's one thing to have an A-B test, say, of a landing page for a pay-per-click ad. But if you don't know why people are choosing one over the other, then you can't improve. You can only test randomly and hope that you you pick the better of the two. It's really important to figure out what things are going to matter to the audience that you're appealing to. Again, going back to the whole uh, musician marketing as an example, if you're testing a green MySpace profile versus a blue MySpace profile, that may have some incremental difference on the audience, who converts to become a listener of your music or who converts to eventually buy an album or buy a song. But you're probably going to be much better off looking at your data and saying, okay, what, uh, what common characteristics do we have here first before you even trying to test anything because if you don't know in advance of what you're looking for testing can waste a tremendous amount of time and resources even on the internet you can just spend all your time randomly testing things and hoping it all works out for the best 
that's really good guidance. I'm going to refer to another golden rule. Please, thanks for indulging me. Um, golden rule number three is to create a unique value proposition. Uh, we call it a UVP, something free or high value that will build an ongoing relationship with website visitors. So it's your free form on a website, your free newsletter, your free white paper download. What are some of the UVPs you've used and why does it matter? How has it worked for you? Free money is always good. You know, offer a scholarship. People love money that they don't have to that they don't have to borrow. Uh, that's, that's right. You know, that's got to be one of the best ones, right? Believe me, lead generation is easy when you're giving away ten thousand um, <laughs> dollars. But in all seriousness, if I had to recommend one thing that you could do to help yourself in this area, it is to go pull out pretty much every Seth Godin book you could possibly find and read them all in order of, of publication because. Things that That's never bad advice, right? <laughs> exactly. The things that have worked for me do all have in common the things that Godin talks about, which is essentially you have to have something worth talking about. You have to have something that people will think is important. You know, the, the number one most successful podcaster in the world is Rush Limbaugh. He charges $5 a month for his podcast, and he has over a million subscribers. You know, that's a tremendous amount of money. When you, when you think about it, it's 25, what, 5, 5? Uh, I'll do the math later. Um, <laughs> well, a million times but, 5 is 5 million bucks a month. Right, so it's $60 million a year. Not bad. And, you know, whether you, whatever you think about his politics, the fact is that his unique value is the fact that he has a, a committed, loyal audience because they love what he has to say. Love him or hate him, he's making the money, and, and he's, he's figured out his unique value proposition. He's unique. He's, he is remarkable, and he is, something that, he is someone who has figured out what his audience wants. And again, going right back to the whole segmentation of your data and looking at your data, what is it that you have to offer that's worth talking about? What is it that you have to offer that is of interest? If you gave your products to you know, 100 people on the street or your service to 100 people on the street, completely for free, and didn't tell them anything about it. How many people would, A, understand even what it was, and B, would think it's interesting enough to at least tell a friend or not throw it in the trash can immediately? That's the key. Let's get into some of the advanced ninja tools. Um, <laughs> you know, we've covered some basic stuff, and, you know, this, this is the kind of stuff Chris does in his sleep. You want to talk about some of the different things that you put on your list of some of the advanced tools that you're using in, in interactive marketing. First, I'll preface it by saying that I use a Macintosh, and a good number of these tools require the use of a Macintosh or a Unix system. The Macintosh computer, and I don't get paid by Apple for anything. I wish I did. The Macintosh computer, it looks you know, shiny and pretty and easy to use, but when you scrape away the candy-colored interface, it is a Unix system. It is the same system that the BSD mock kernel is the same system that powers some of the world's largest supercomputers, and you have access to it and all of the utilities on it if you pop open the terminal, if you pop open the command line and get past all the, the shininess. The Macintosh, because it's Unix, comes with a whole kit of Unix tools that are incredibly powerful. I'll give you an example. There was a few years ago I paid, I forget how much it was, it was an obnoxious amount of money for a piece of software that could extract email addresses out of a contact file and, and help me assemble it to a mailing list. And it was for Windows at the time. It was expensive. There were updates and, and the usual stuff. On the Macintosh, I can open the command line and type in one command, literally one line long, and do the exact same thing as that extremely expensive piece of software. Do it faster and you know, slice, dice, and, and make Julian fries eight different ways to Sunday. And the ability to do that gives me so much more power as a data-oriented marketer, which is what I, I'm weird. <laughs> it's a thing. In a, a lot good of marketing, way, in a good way. <laughs> 
Exactly. My my background is in information systems, you know, in technology. Uh, I got into marketing accidentally by working at a very small company where you know everybody does everything. So I sit in the strange space of being both marketing and IT. So I understand a marketing concept, but then I also understand the tools that it takes to make that actually happen. And I can do them all on my laptop. You know, start the email campaign and at the same time, you know, run Perl, set awk, cat, sort, and all the Unix command line programs to slice and dice data sets to get into the email tool. You can do the same thing if, if you're a marketer Start taking some technology courses. Learn a language like PHP. It's one of the easiest to learn, one of the most powerful. I write most of my custom scripts for marketing in PHP, and you don't even need a web server, just uh, just a Mac or a PC. Actually, you can even run it on a PC. Unix gives you these tools that are so powerful. They're, it's almost illegal to have them. You know, <laughs> the things you could do with them. As an example, you, know, you can run the My, uh, MySQL database. This is an enterprise-class database, the same database that powers all of Yahoo.com on your laptop. If you can write in the SQL language, the structured query language, you can do more, accomplish more, and get more insight into your data than with just about any other tool. And certainly blows away Microsoft Excel or any consumer-grade data analysis tool. A couple other tools I think are really interesting. I use BB Edit, which is a great text editor that allows me to write my own programming scripts inside of it so I can clean up malformed email addresses if I have a, a, a mailing list. If someone misspells Hotmail, I can just automatically clean up a whole bunch of lists and things and, and get them back into sanitary condition. Google has been doing some really interesting stuff on the code side of things in terms of what APIs or application programming interfaces they have open. For example, you could write your own search engine using some of their APIs. More importantly, you can take their results, which are high-quality results, and then do interesting stuff with them. Like you can Google anything on MySpace because MySpace is open to Google for the most part, unless you know you have a private profile. But any of the data that's on there age, ethnicity, religion, interests, music and television preferences, location, all that data is in MySpace and it is scanned by Google, it is indexed by Google, and by using Google's tools that they provide, you can slice and dice that in a number of different ways. And the last one I will mention is a service I use that is definitely not free and, and uh, not even inexpensive, but worth it. Uh, it's a company called Blue Sky Factory. They have a, they're a commercial mailing service. They power a lot of what I do in terms of the outreach, whether it's for PodCamp or whether it's for the student loan network. Being able to send and intelligently segment your email the, and the campaigns you do is just such a huge value. Oh, and the last one I wanted to mention was Twitter, which is the best way I can describe Twitter is group asynchronous instant messaging. So you could I am a whole bunch of people, but it's on a website, so you can come back to it later, and people can have a discussion without you having to be there or logged on, and you can go back and read it. It's really hard to characterize what Twitter is. Uh, for me, the way I use it, it's in, it's my own personal AP newswire. I can find friends on there quote friends, who are in industries or verticals or things that I want to know more about and, and just read what it is they're doing, what they're up to in any given day or time and gain insights. I heard about Bear Stearns collapsing on Wall Street on Twitter before any major news outlet. I heard, I've heard about you know, various accidents like you know, crane collapses in New York City well before the mainstream media got a hold of it. And that is just invaluable to me, the ability to, to get news sometimes from inside organizations themselves before, long before it goes public. Yeah, it's amazing. We started out talking about blogs and newsletter articles, and I think there's kind of a hierarchy of messaging. You're only allowed 140 characters in a Twitter tweet. For a lot of people now, they're starting to put a short message like breaking news, crane collapses in New York in a Twitter. 
And then on your blog, you could talk about it a little bit more and you could say, here's six or seven articles on the on the crane collapse and you could link to pictures and stuff like that or you could show pictures. And then a newsletter article, you might break down a story about the crane collapse and it's, you know, it might be five, six hundred words. So it's, it's almost like a, a hierarchy of communications with these different tools. At least that's one of the ways I'm starting to describe it. I think it's a fair way to do it, yeah. I'm using Twitter as much just as a news feed. It's, it's amazing how much information I'm getting about our industry, about interactive marketing, by mm-hmm. following guys like you and, and Robert Scobel's traveling all around the world doing video blogging and Steve Garfield video blogging. Steve Rubell has the Micro Persuasion Amazing Marketing blog, and he's always breaking news on Twitter. So by following some of these folks, you get the latest news without even having to look very hard. I've actually set my browser now when it opens. It opens on my Twitter homepage. I get all the latest news, flip through a couple pages of Twitter, then I go to my I Google and find out what people are saying on their blogs and then five, ten minutes later I'm fully refreshed on the, the latest news and I can start my email or whatever my day starts with. Exactly. I wanted to ask you because you're in touch with the financial market, how serious do you think the problems with the economy are? How how close do you think we are to a big R recession? And what are some of the things people can do to recession-proof their business or their careers? Do you want the diplomatic answer or the honest answer? No, I want the real stuff. We're, we're already in the big R. We've been in the big R since December, and we're heading further down that slope. We've got a long way to go. It is bottom of the third in a nine-inning game, and I don't think anyone has the idea of the scope of economic damage that potentially still lies ahead. There's a great chart from Credit Suisse First Boston about subprime mortgages and all the damage you see in the economy so far has been from a third of the mortgages that are supposed to reset. There's still two-thirds of subprime, just subprime alone, that have not reset yet. They happened this year. So you're going to be seeing a lot, of, a lot more economic stress. That's the good news. Bad news is there are two other classes of mortgages, Alt-A and Option-Arm mortgages, that are equally poor quality. They reset over the next two years, and they are equal or greater in volume than the subprime mortgages. So you're looking at at least another two years on the financial services market of absolute misery. And recession-proofing your business, I mean, the only way you can ever recession-proof anything is to be providing incredible value, so much value that it would be incredibly foolish to not work with. And you've got to be so far ahead of your competitors that no one would even try to compete with you. you. You almost have to be you know, the Google of your vertical where nobody can touch you just because you're innovating faster than anyone else. That's really great advice. Very, very interesting. Chris, I think this is amazing. I'd love to keep going because I always love the way you're able to take a topic, drill it down, make it simple. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you for having me. You can check out my stuff at uh, financialaidpodcast.com, marketingovercoffee.com, and christophersspen.com. Thanks so much. And we'll, of course, have all the links in the show notes. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to do that. I really, really appreciate it. And as you guys can tell, this guy is a monster strategist, and he's a really, really great technical guy. So hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did. In conclusion, we always play out with a song from the Podcast Music Network. I haven't picked the song yet, and I'll do that in post-production, but it'll definitely be something Canadian or something to do with loons or, or natural habitat. So here it is. Enjoy it. Have a great week, everybody. Riding beer and radio waves Three punks born yesterday Three philosophers at that parking spot We set out on Canada Day We were going our own way Our luck was hard but we pushed it far we
for listening to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing podcast. Please send comments and questions to podcast at 10goldenrules.com. That's podcast at 10goldenrules.com. Or use our call-in line 206-888-6606. with Cast Blaster. Ten golden rules for all your internet marketing needs.